Well, we come to the last sermon in this series through the letters to the seven churches found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So I invite you to turn there with me now, Revelation chapter 3. And um, the book of Revelation was written by John the Apostle, as we've mentioned before, written in the mid-90s A.D. when the church had been experiencing greater persecution for their belief in Jesus. And so to encourage the church, we see in chapter 1 that Jesus himself brings John this vision words, a vision, which leads to words that were to encourage the church as they face suffering, as they look towards the return of Jesus, which of course includes judgment against those who oppose him and final salvation for those who believe on him. This book was written, of course, in the, to the churches, they're the seven churches in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey, and of course this is for us as well, given that this is the word of God. The letters we know were to be circulated to all of the different Christian churches there. And of course, God's word is intended for us today. And so when it comes to the issues addressed in our passage, I assume that we can all identify to some degree with the struggles present in the church addressed today, the church of Laodicea. Look there at Revelation chapter 3, 14 to 22. I'll go ahead and read that right now. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write... The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that, you, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The outline of the letter is pretty typical. Uh, Most of the letters, actually all of the letters, come with a greeting. Jesus states that he knows what exactly is going on in the church, saying, I know your works, I know your deeds. And for most of the letters here, he offers a rebuke, which is then followed by Jesus' command and call to repent and hear the Lord who has formed his church and even sustains the church now. In our case, Jesus knew that the church was not doing well spiritually because they had given in to the lure of prosperity. The lure of prosperity. This brings us to point number one, the lure of prosperity. According to the Bible, prosperity has been one of the biggest temptations of God's people throughout history. Prosperity, right, either gaining it or seeking it, has caused God's people, Old Testament or New Testament, to abandon God. It's not that earthly prosperity, so think of money, comfort, etc., are bad in and of themselves. That's certainly not true. We see in the New Testament that people use their wealth for God's good. And for the provision of other Christians, right, that's good. We know that some Christians there in the New Testament, the book of Acts, for example, had a lot of wealth. 
But we know that many end up worshiping money and prosperity over Jesus Christ. So when people have attained prosperity, people tend to gain a false sense of security. And a certain pride then leads them to no longer need God, right? They judge themselves to be self-sufficient. And, and non-Christians know this too. I mean, I was listening to, watching one YouTube video about this Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. And he said that for a while, or listening to this podcast, and he said for a while he was driving this Tesla, right? Finally, he had gotten the car that he wanted. And he found himself, while he was driving his Tesla around town, he found himself looking at other people differently. He had attained this certain level, and therefore he was judging not only others, but himself, because he had attained this certain thing. It, it, along with it came this false sense of security or a pride or attainment that therefore looks down on others. And in this case, it seems like they are, in some ways, looking so high upon themselves that they just feel so free to dispose of God. In that situation, God can be disposed of, and then you start living life independently of God, not relying on God, your creator and sustainer, but instead relying upon yourself, judging yourself to be self Sufficient. That's exactly what happened with these struggling Christians in the city of Laodicea. Look there at verse 17. What is it that they say? What is it that they say that God, right, he has against them? They say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Laodicea was a very wealthy and affluent city. So maybe you could, I guess, think of it as like uh, the Beverly Hills of Asia Minor. To give you a snapshot of their wealth, uh, for example, when a devastating earthquake kind of rattled Laodicea and the surrounding area, the valley there, the people chose not to seek government help to rebuild the city, but instead they used their own money to rebuild the city. That's incredibly wealthy. So just think about if Hacienda Heights were leveled and then Hacienda Heights says, no, we're okay, we're going to rebuild everything ourselves. Commerce also was strong. So as Laodicea had a strong textile industry along with it came the banking industry so money lenders stuff like that and then they were known for their medical school which some of their doctors had very successful medicines at least that uh, were highly sought after and and then there was wealth to spread around everybody got a piece everybody ate part of the pie so to speak whether they be roman or jewish or christian everybody seems to have been prospering there but in their wealth they depended on no one That's interesting, right? The Christians were no different in attitude than the Romans, the pagans. Already something should be hugely wrong in your mind, right? The yellow flags and the red flags should be throwing up, being tossed into the air right now. They needed nothing and they needed no one because of their self-sufficiency. Now you guys should know, right? This is something is seriously wrong when the Christian who says that they are saved by a gift outside of themselves from their sovereign creator God and Jesus says, I am in need of nothing. And no matter the aspect of our lives, whether it be material or spiritual, I am in need of nothing. But they didn't see the problem. They were on top of the world and so they settled into their prosperity and the pride of life and they became ineffective in their witness to Jesus. Their ineffective witness is what verses 15 to 16 refers to. Verse 15, I know your works, Jesus says. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, right? Either of those options is better than what they are. It's their deeds that are lacking, right? You are not this or that. You are not hot or cold. Now, when it comes to the reference of hot or cold, do not think that these are descriptions of spiritual fervency. 
as in coldness means they don't love God and hot means they are on fire for the Lord. That's not what it means here. Think of it as spiritual usefulness. Spiritual usefulness. So it's not spiritual fervency, but spiritual usefulness. Jesus wishes, right, that they were either hot or cold. Either of those things would be better than what they are. Both are good, but the middle is ineffective. It's useless. The reference is the two different types of water found in two uh, nearby cities to Laodicea. One city, just six miles away, had hot springs where the water was full of useful minerals. So just think about how minerals are useful to the human body. People have been drinking um, you know, this spring water for quite some time. Not only that, though, but the, the, but the, spring, the hot springs were used as baths for thousands of years. You can go there today and use the baths. And then in another city, right, we just looked at the, the water that was hot. <clears throat> in another city just six miles away, the city of Colossae, which is where the Colossian church was, they had cold, pure water, cold, pure water, which, of course, is refreshing, obviously, on a hot day. So both types of water, right, they each have their usefulness. But the Laodiceans were not like this or like that. They were neither hot nor cold. They were spiritually lukewarm, so to speak, in their spiritual effectiveness. One person put their spiritual effectiveness this way. They provided neither refreshment to the spiritually weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. And so their ability to minister was totally ineffective and thus distasteful to the Lord, which is why Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out. It's easily understood that if we are so of the world, which is what they were, right? They're neither this nor that. They've lost their ministerial effectiveness. It, but it's easily understood that when we are so of the world, we're going to be so ineffective in our witness to Christ, whose kingdom is not of this world. Jesus, who had no place to lay his head, right? It's just not going to fit, fit your lifestyle, really. The Laodicean Christians, they let Christ's eternal spiritual riches get eclipsed by earthly riches. And this, of course, reveals what they in their sin and in their temptation truly valued or eventually had come to value. So remember the parable of the soils where the farmer goes out, which is God, and he's sowing seeds, which is the word of God, and it falls along four different kinds of soil. Really, three are non-Christians. The one is a true Christian. And, and one of the ones that is not a Christian the, the word falls on the thorny soil, the thorny person, so to speak. Matthew 13, 22, this is what Jesus says. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word of God. So they hear it. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful, unfruitful. These Christians were wrestling with the deceitfulness of riches. And they were losing. Being in love with the world, they were ineffective in their witness to Jesus. And we understand this too, of course. Well, you know, we're going to lead other people to, we're going to lead our friends to, we're going to lead our families to what we desire and depend upon. And if all that satisfies you, us, is the stuff of the world, the world's riches, the world's comfort, the world's beauty, then who needs Jesus? Those who love the world, they become evangelists for the world, not Christ. Maybe you guys know what this is like. Back in the day when you saw your need for Jesus, 
You understood your deep and sinful rejection of your very maker. And the harm that you had caused because of your own sin. And you also saw the beauties of Jesus. How Jesus could make everything better because of his free sovereign grace and his love. And so you once, you once witnessed to him with fervor. Jesus changed my life, you told your friends. You got to know him. You got to have him. I wonder what subject feels, fills your conversation these days. Once maybe you sought to be found in Christ, and that was sort of the overarching principle of your life, but now maybe you're chasing something else. Do you preach the good news of other things? I mean, I'm talking about in a controlling manner where maybe that thing really is controlling your life. I mean, I wonder what your friends and coworkers would say is that thing that this guy, that you, is always talking about, that we have to have, that thing we need, the thing we got to buy, the thing we got to consume in order to have the great life, to gain that thing of prosperity, whether that thing be bringing comfort, security, affluence, freedom, status. For the Laodiceans, they failed to guard against the deceitfulness of riches. And so the riches ended up reordering their priorities. That's exactly what sin and Satan seek to do. I mean, here they are advancing their prosperity, but then they go backward in their relationship with God. I am rich. I am prosperous. I need nothing, not even God. I think in America, especially, people love this kind of thinking. It's the myth of the self-made man or woman. The myth of a self-made man or woman in need of no one, not even God. But for anyone, especially the Christian, to believe that we are self-made is absolutely nuts. It is absolutely insane. For one, God is the sovereign creator by definition, which means that everything in our lives is dependent upon God. So from the get-go... From the get-go, we are not self-made, but God-made creatures. We can go further. Think more specifically about how God is sovereign to save. So think more specifically about God's people who believe in the Lord, follow the Lord, love Jesus, love God. It was God, wasn't it, who, who initiated a relationship with his people. Think of Abraham. It was God who gathered his people together, starting from Abraham. And Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was not seeking God. It was God who made the decision to draw near to him. God was the one who made the covenant with him. And God was the one who chose to fulfill his covenant with Abraham. Think of salvation. How God is sovereign in salvation. Right? God made us his creation. The only thing we made was the decision to sin. So we rebelled against our only creator. Even though he made us to be in a relationship with him. God could have judged us right there in that very moment. He absolutely had the right to. But what does he do? God chooses. He chooses. He makes the decision to pursue sinners instead. And as the good news tells us, God sends his eternal son, who was pre-existent with, pre-existed, pre-existed the world. But he sends his eternal son on the mission to save sinners all by God's covenant grace. Though we were the ones who had sinned and could not live the righteous life that God demanded and desired of us, Jesus does. Though we should have borne the wrath for sinning against God, rebelling against Him, instead, Jesus does. 
And so he dies on the cross, bearing the wrath that his people deserve. Three days later, he gets up from the dead, showing that judgment is no longer required for those who repent of their sin and believe on him. Now, he didn't do this because he had to or because we'd done something to earn it, but simply because he chose to, all according to his steadfast love. He has foreknown us. He has elected us. He has saved us. But not only is God sovereign to save, he is sovereign to transform. God gives us his spirit so we would love and look more like Jesus. And then God is sovereign to sustain us as he is the one who has given us our very own gifts and our abilities and all of the varied resources, whether much or little, that we might be his stewards in the world and that we would be responsible for everything that he's given us for his name's sake. And then, of course, he is also sovereign to judge. And so it's to him that we are all accountable to, which is exactly what Revelation talks about. So where is the self-made man? To brag and then boast in ourselves, thinking we have achieved, thinking it did not come from God, or to say, in some sort of Christianized way, to say, sure, it came from God, but we no longer need him. That is just delusional. And it is offensive to him who made us to be in a relationship with him and to live for him. If you guys uh, clear out, let's say, an hour this afternoon, I'd encourage you guys to read the chapter Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, it speaks of how God's people, though they were God-made people by God's grace, they were God-made people, but in their sin, they go on and trust in themselves. They took the grace of God for granted, and then they simply disposed of them. Seriously convicting, because you see how Israel continually, as it says there in Ezekiel chapter 16, hoard themselves away to other nations seeking prosperity and security in the nations as opposed to God. But in the end, Ezekiel chapter 16, it says that God atones for their sins. This church was in danger of believing that they were self-made Christians. But while this church thought that they had arrived and had no need, what does Jesus say there in verse 17? He says actually that they are, in fact, wretched, pitiable, poor blind and naked there's no need to separate all these different adjectives or spend an hour thinking about them all it's clear that according to god they they were the ones who were actually desperately needy here's something we really need to pay attention to here they were blind though to their blindness did you notice that there they didn't realize it one of satan's ploys is to give you an eye for earthly riches so that you would be blinded to your spiritual desperation. The same is true for other spiritual idolatries, other heart idols. It doesn't necessarily need to be riches and comfort and prosperity. It could be. It could also be comfort and security. Maybe what caused you to desire is to be made much of. Here's another idol. And so you strive to be strong, beautiful, or competent in the world's eyes. So then the question for us is, what are you developing an eye for? To help you diagnose, I wonder how you would fill in the blank. Once I, blank, do this, have this, achieve this, then I have made it. Picture the person who obsessively checks that something. What is it that the thing, what is that thing that you check? I used to be a personal trainer and 
you know, you, you can't help but notice that so many people are looking into the mirror. Now, I get that sometimes I encourage people, when I used to work as a personal trainer, you want to encourage people to look in the mirror so you can check form, you don't, don't want to get injured and stuff like that. But there were a lot of people who were obsessively checking the mirror, not to check form, but to look at themselves. And, and once that thing is in place, then, ah, I'm good. Do you check your body in the mirror? Once you have that thing in place, then you're good. Maybe you check your retirement account. Maybe you check the, the new thing, the latest drop, the materialism, the thing that you want to buy. Once you have that, then you're good. Or maybe it has more to do with other people's opinion of you. And so you're not necessarily checking an object. You're, you're more so constantly wondering, gauging, constantly questioning Constantly trying to please other people and seeing how other people react to you. And so you put out something just to see how they would respond. And then once you get their praise, then you're good. Then you've arrived. Or once you have that money, that possession, that affection from other people, then you have made it. Because once you've made it, then man, who needs God? At least that, that's what sin wants you to think. Christians who act like this show first... Um, I mean, there's a whole lot of things that the Christian, in our own hearts, as we struggle with this, it, it, we show really what's going on in our hearts. We show that we don't understand that we are completely dependent upon God. We don't show that we know God all too well, right? We're not really valuing Christ over that other thing, even though Christ is all valuable. We don't show that we understand, or we show that we do not understand the goal of the Christian life. It's not to arrive at a certain possession or have a certain amount of success. Right, that's not the goal. Christ likeness is the goal. We also show we do not understand that, they, that we are to be stewards of the resources that God g gave us for His namesake. We also show we don't know too well how we are to be witnesses of Jesus and how depending upon earthly riches is a negative testimony. But in all of these things, we've got to understand that these people look a lot like the world around them. Having drank from the counsel of the world, they then had compromised their witness for Jesus. But just as we have seen in all of the letters in Roman, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, regardless of the Christian's faithfulness or the Christian's faithlessness, Christ wants his people depending on him and taking counsel on him. This brings us to point number two, dependence on Christ. Point number two, dependence on Christ. With the Christians so comfortable in their wealth and their prosperity, look at Christ's ironic counsel there in verse 18. He says there, I counsel you to buy from me. And that's like, you should underscore that me. Because they just got done saying, I am this, I am that. And he says, look, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourselves. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Christ knows that they have, in fact, a wrong-headed sense of wealth. So he calls them to metaphorically buy from him the things that are of eternal value. Now, he's not, he isn't really telling them to bring money to buy from him. Jesus' words here are an echo of the amazing invitation of the Lord in Isaiah 55.1. Of course, Jesus is the Lord. Isaiah 55.1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. So whatever Jesus wants him to buy, the Lord wants him to buy, it's free. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without so Jesus calls them to do what? 
Jesus calls them to do what? Buy what? Gold refined by fire. So you guys might be familiar with this metaphor in the Bible. What is that thing that is like gold refined by the fire? It's faith in Christ, which brings us, right, true spiritual wealth. Next is the white garments to cover the shame of their nakedness. White, you can think of purity. Also, we've talked about how these white garments also might signify that they are conquerors invited to the supper of the king. And then lastly, solve or medicine for their eyes that they might truly see. So here Jesus is redirecting their attention away from all that they're so comfortable with to him. And it just so happens that these earthly things were the trades that the Laodiceans valued, right? Gold or banking. That's think about gold. White garments, you can think of the textile industry. The medicine, you can think of their medical schools, which they actually were uh, pushing out. Eye, ointment. But Jesus here, he redefines prosperity. It's like he says, look, this is what it means to be truly prosperous in the very eyes of God. Those who have a relationship with him, that is those who have faith. Come and get that. He says, those who have their sin and their shame covered by him. Think of the garments. And those who see Christ for those he is. Think of the ointment and the salve. It all comes down to Jesus. So did you notice they're the true source of this prosperity again? I counsel you to buy from me. He does not intend, Christian, that you seek satisfaction and prosperity from the world as if he designed the world and gave you your jobs and gave you your existence and all of your abilities and everything you enjoy only to say, thanks, God, I'm done with you. He sacrifices himself and he saves us from sin, out of the sinful world, into an awesome, loving relationship with him so that we might begin to know and grow in satisfaction in Christ the Redeemer of the world. Of course, knowing Christ doesn't mean that temptations will end. This church was going through temptations. We all are going through various temptations. But in all, they were tempted to adopt the values of the world. And certainly the same goes for us, right? Developing an eye for a certain something. But in these moments, but it's in these moments where Jesus' rebuke is so helpful. We, too, need this rebuke because we don't often realize or see or understand the deceitfulness of riches. They didn't. We do not. They develop an eye so that their heart will be dull. We too might be developing an eye for something of the world so that our hearts would be dull. And so Jesus comes along and wakes us up. And he does so out of love. Do you notice there in verse 19 that he disciplines, he rebukes here those whom he loves? Christian, knowing that Christ desires that we encourage one another and that we rebuke one another as the case may require, knowing that we can be self-deceived and knowing that we are unaware sometimes of the deceitfulness of riches, prosperity, beauty, whatever it is you want, uh, who do you have in your life that can rebuke you, of course, gently and with love? Who do you have that can speak into your life to check you on that? Knowing we can be self-deceived blinded to the deceitfulness of riches. Who do you have who can rebuke you when they think you are too attached to the world? Let me encourage you to find someone who you trust, very important, and someone who understands your journey. Someone who gets that sanctification, takes a lifetime, that it cannot be immediate, otherwise you might fall too much under the burden of you know, someone's demands, but you know, we want to be charitable even to that Christian because they too are growing. But find someone you trust and someone who understands your journey and share with them your weaknesses, your sins, 
your struggles, and even the places in which you're going to be tempted. Where do you have a struggle to develop an eye for something in the world? And then invite that Christian brother or sister to speak into your life in love, in gentleness, and call you to repent where needed. Do not forget, just as the Laodiceans were, you too, Christian, can be self-deceived. They did not realize their weakness. We do not always realize our weakness. And so Jesus, speaking through John here, rebukes them and calls them to repentance. And Christians, don't forget that as you go around practicing this, right, rebuking one another in love, trying to push each other to look to Jesus for satisfaction, don't forget here that the goal is not self-denial for self-denial's sake. That says that nothing on the earth can be enjoyed. That would be false. There's plenty of things that by God's common grace can be enjoyed and maybe ought to be enjoyed. But none of it should be idolized and worshipped over Christ himself. So it's important to realize this, and it's great that our passage makes this very clear. What Jesus is after is not merely a life of self-denial. A Buddhist can give you that life. That's not what Christ is after. A Stoic can give you that life, but that's not what Christ is after. What Christ is after is a loving relationship with his people where he is our God and we are his people. And he desires that we continue persevering, knowing that nothing less than eternal salvation is at stake. He wants us with him because he knows that the world is going down. And he desires this out of his love. You look at 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's really interesting. He has all of this rebuke for them, but you would figure, right, in our own human sense that that God would almost write them off. But then he says, wait, remember, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Some have thought this is primarily directed to non-Christians. Actually, it's, it's primarily directed to the struggling Christians. That's us. And notice Christ's posture of pursuit, this loving pursuit, pursuit. Despite how they have exiled Christ from their lives, what does the loving Lord do to you, to them? He's present, standing at the door, knocking. What a beautiful picture of your Savior's love. If you were to pour out yourself for another's benefit, only to have them take your blessings and then dispose of you, you probably respond a little bit differently, right? You probably want to exile them, but not with Christ. As usual, he pursues us. Even we excluded him in a moment. He desires to make his presence known in our lives in order to bless us. To those who hear him, heed his rebuke and repent, he says, I will come in to eat with him and he with me. This is dining together with the Lord at the, the, the supper of the Lamb where he has prepared the spread This is loving fellowship and the enjoyment of Christ and his eternal kingdom. So, friend, if you're struggling with the deceitfulness of riches, whether you possess it or whether you're seeking to possess it, remember this world will not last but will be tested in judgment. The entire creation, you guys know from Romans, awaits the new creation where God will make all things new. So why throw your hope in the stuff that's going to end? Why seek the riches of the world and then place our identity in the riches of the world or anything else in terms of our heart struggles when everything in this world will fade away? Friends, the sinful world will not be faithful to you. They are horrible saviors. 
So don't ever give your loyalties to it. Be faithful to Christ, the Lord and Savior. Did you notice how the letter opens there in verse 14? And to the angel of the church, right? We either, we've mentioned before, this could be an elder, this could be a spiritual representative of the church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? Here's Jesus. He's pointing the people back to him as a standard for all of these different letters, a standard for Revelation. If you read Revelation 1, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. This is who I am. This is how it should affect your life. He says the words of the amen. I think we have a further description here of what that means. The faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation. Christ addresses the church, the amen, truly, truly. That's what it means. And then he says, the faithful and true witness, the faithful and true one. He is the one that you can bank on and trust and he will not let you down. How can Laodicean Christians and how can we put all of our hopes in the world when they aren't faithful to us? But it is the Lord who is the amen, the faithful and true, the one that you can bank on and trust and he will not let you down. He is the one who guarantees an infinite return on investment, so to speak, for the life to come in eternal salvation with Him and presently to know the joy of knowing Him and living for Him and to be changed more and more like Him in the present and to know His love here in this congregation as extensions of His love. Of course, this costs us something. Right? We all know that peeling ourselves away from the world costs something. Chasing anything, though, costs something, right? But forsaking the sinful world to gain your soul is the best sacrifice one can make. In Mark 8, 35 and 36, it reads, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Friends, just, if you find this difficult, just look to Christ to see where your life is headed, Christian. He certainly did die, which means that this earthly, this earthly life will come to an end. But he lived again, and he is the beginning of the new creation. So develop an eye there for Christ and where he is. He is the beginning of the new creation. Here it means the beginning of God's new creation. God's new creation. And for those who believe on him, And for those who are in Him, we experience Christ's new creation life. First in the Spirit, where we come to know once again joy in Christ, pleasures forevermore at His right hand, according to Psalm 16. But secondly, we know this new creation in the body, when we too, like Christ, will be raised to new life. In Christ we have therefore true prosperity, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You want your Christianity to prove to the world that the poorest Christian in India or Sri Lanka or somewhere to the richest Christian can have equal satisfaction. God forbid your Christianity would be limited to only the prosperous. That is no Christianity and no gospel. Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is why he says, come and buy. Eternal salvation costs him his life so that we who are poor in spirit can come, buy, and eat without money, without price. 
So Christian, if you struggle with materialism or the deceitfulness of riches, repent of your sin and trust in Christ. That thing that's calling your name, that, that Satan and sin wants you to develop that I for. Reject it. Run from it. And if that thing is not inherently bad, then go on and study it. What does God have to say about that particular thing? Because we know that many things inherently are not necessarily bad. Are you studying those things? Whether it be strength or beauty, riches, materialism, things of the world, and how God wants you to use those things, develop an eye for how Christ wants you to think about those things. And this ultimately is developing an eye for Christ himself. Friends, why would you opt for the temporary things of this world and so therefore throw away your relationship with Christ and eternal life in him? Look at verse 21. You get a little bit more of an idea of what eternal life, of what life with Jesus entails. Just as he was raised to sit on the throne with God, in God's faithfulness is what he promised, so his people will reign with Christ in the life to come. And we can bank on his promise. Verse 21, to the conqueror or to the overcomer, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Christ is the one that we are to look to just as he saved us. So he will preserve us according to his spirit and the word. And it is he that is the true conqueror because in ourselves we know that we are done. Praise God that Jesus is the overcomer and he has already overcome the world. The flesh. Sinful flesh who crucified him and the devil. He leaves us with a call. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you one who will hear? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would help us see the beauties of the King, as it says in Isaiah, so that we would so easily be able to run from the temptations of the world. While we clearly live in the world, we know that we are not to be of the world. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to run from the temptations of the world so that we would find true solace and rest and peace in you. We know, Lord, that you are our faithful God. We thank you that in you there is, in fact, true satisfaction and pleasures for more, forevermore at your right hand. Help us see so clearly as we look to Jesus, help us see where our life is headed into the ground as all the, all the fleshly life ends. But we pray, too, that you would help us be shaken up, shooken up, looking for something more knowing that there is life after death and knowing, Lord Jesus, that life could be had in you. Father, we pray that you would show us where we are developing an eye for the world and where our hearts are tempted to find our prosperity and our identity in the world so that we might, therefore, turn from these things, these so-called heart idols, and that we would turn to you. God, we pray that we would be people who are always led by the word of God. 
And Lord Jesus, we ask that we would truly have a vision for who you are so that we would never lose track. Forgive us of our sins where we have been tempted towards the world that we might repent of these things and believe upon you and continue to trust. We thank you, God, that you are the sovereign one. So even where we do struggle, we know, Lord, that just as you have sovereignly saved us, so you are sovereignly sanctifying us, so you are sovereignly preserving us. Give us unction to live the Christian life. We pray that we would serve as faithful servants of yours, as soldiers of Christ Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.